Welcome to episode 10 of The Matchup, a storytelling podcast from St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you, the listener, gets to decide who told the most compelling story. I'm your host, Jason Franklin, and today we have back with us the Reverend Nick Van Horn and Dr. Mark Audrey Graves. Welcome back, guys. The Marks strike back. The Marks. (laughs) Yes, the Battle of the Marks. So Nick and Mark are referring to the fact that they recorded last week's episode together. Um, and they are going to do a total of three episodes together. So we're in the middle right now. Um, Which the, is usually the darkest of the trilogy, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, so you recorded, what was last week's episode? It was the... Oh, the supernatural event. Best supernatural event in church, church history. history. Yeah. Any ideas, thoughts who might be leading in the voting? I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, no. I don't even know where to find that page, by the way. Like, I'm <laughs> no. terrible. I know, I know. <laughs> we'll, we'll make it easier for you. Okay. Um, so currently, winning by one vote Ooh. is Dr. Mark Audrey Gray. Hey. Oh. So in the in the three-pointer, you got one point. Okay. Um, Nick, who's going to tell the most compelling story today? I don't know. I don't know what he's going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I'm sure they're both compelling because here's the deal is when you say the worst of the Reformation, there's so many worst of the Reformation, right. you know, and, and, and Mark and I can go down rabbit holes for days. Oh, yeah. I, I was telling yeah. him that I really struggled because I wanted to do John Calvin. Mm-hmm. But then I realized I actually really like John Calvin. I just don't like most people who follow John Calvin. Yeah, we had this conversation. We both felt the same <laughs> we way. We felt the same way. Like, so then I yeah. tried to say, OK, maybe I'll do the best. John Calvin, which I didn't, and the and the worst to kind of justify yeah. it, but I just I didn't yeah. go down that creative rabbit hole. Yeah, I mean, Calvin, it's interesting. Like he he gets a bad rap, but when you read his actual writings, he's a very good writer. He's an excellent writer, and, and he actually struggles with the things that you might have a problem with in Calvinism. Yeah, like he even says, like I, I I'm genuinely like I I don't know any other conclusion, and he even talks about how a lot of that's just been indoctrinated in him, and it's hard to pull that yeah. that out of his way but and without john calvin we would not have a lot of things yeah. without john calvin i mean what did i say to you yesterday carl Bart. there's no carl bart without john mm. calvin love me some carl bart but without john calvin there's no richard hooker there's probably no book no. of common prayer the way we know it okay today so or the pilgrims but i guess that's not that's a really good argument pilgrims. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. speaking so as nick referenced uh episode three was the best person from the reformation um and today's episode is the worst person from the Re- reformation which makes me nervous because i lost that one too <laughs> actually i just checked your tide really mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right yeah all right in each episode our two guests will present their case we'll talk a little about it and after the episode you will vote on who told the most compelling story i'm the only person who knows what story each person is going to tell and who will go first until now Nicholas Van Horn, would you like to present your case for the worst person from the Reformation? I'll be away team. <laughs> um, again, like like I explained to y'all and I explained to Mark, I mean, it's everybody in the Reformation could be the worst and the best. <laughs> I mean, what they brought to the table and as we conclude this, you know, um, so that's really hard. Yeah. Um, the reason why I picked what I picked is not to be mean or pithy. But I, I think the story I'm going to tell really represents the human condition in response to progression in, within the ecumenical sense. Mm-hmm. So when the church ever has growing pangs, the, the human response is 
just terrible. Mm. And but, but eventually you get good things from it, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah okay. And really briefly remind us, since you did the best person for the Reformation with um, Lucy, what, who did you present? So it was interesting with Lucy because we ours kind of went hand in hand because yeah. she had Cranmer yeah. and I had Elizabeth I. Right. And for anybody still voting, <laughs> Cranmer's great, but you don't get Cranmer without Elizabeth. So just good saying. Um, and uh, there's actually a Cranmer character in here that in my story that won't decide what tradition he's from based on where, where he is in his story. So, uh, <laughs> so okay. Cranmer went back and forth all the time, too. Yeah. Just saying, if you want to vote for that one. <laughs> um, yes. All right. Well, we are. I, I, I am. I'm leaning forward in my seat. <laughs> with anticipation okay so are you ready or yeah, are we ready okay so i have decided that the worst in the reformation are the french <laughs> <laughs> amazing let me give oh, let me no. let me give a little amazing. context here is so what's what's <laughs> you like that that's incredible the french the french so the French are in a very unique situation during the Reformation, the first few generations, specifically geographically. Okay. You know, whenever we think of the Reformation, we talk about these individual stories. We, we of course, talk about the England perspective, the Italian perspective, maybe even the Spanish perspective. We don't really talk about the French perspective a lot. And if you want to paint broad brushes, most of the Protestant movement was in the north half of, of Europe you know, Germany and on, you know, definitely England and everything. And because of Italy's uh, stronghold and in Spain, a lot of the Roman Catholicism kind of uh, coalesced on the southern part. But then you have, and, and that's not to say there isn't exceptions, of course there is, but then you have France right in the middle of all that, like geographically right in the middle of all that. And it really takes a long time for it to find its identity. And I would even argue maybe it really, it truly never really did. It never had its stronghold of Italy having having the the Roman Catholics there and it never had really had its a settlement that the, that the British had you know to find that identity so my story begins in the second generation of the refer, uh, the Reformation which would be around you know about 50 years later so okay. around uh, 1550 to 50, 1580 and what happens is you have the Queen of France who is Catherine de uh, Medici and she is, um, she's a character. I, you, you have to look at her in several ways through several dimensions. The first one is we have to um, give her grace that a lot of women in, in leadership at the time didn't get. Hmm. For instance, whenever women would do things that were historically bad, uh, when we were Monday quarterbacking, um, they got a worse rap than when the men did the same thing. Kind of like yeah. Bloody Mary. Exactly like yeah. Bloody Mary. She was no worse than any other king in England, but she just got that, right? And we talked about that a little bit in one of these. So with so with that, a lot of the tradition kind of leaned and pointed to her, but also there's some truth in that as well. The other side of that is, if you remember going back to the conversation Lucy and I had, when we were talking about Henry VIII, mm -hmm. Lucy made a really valid point that even though he broke away from the Catholic Church and there was a lot of politicking and there was a lot of ego in that, Henry genuinely loved the church. Yeah. He, I mean, he really did. Like, he, yeah. he knew that it was important to have. He was truly... Um, he wrote theological books. He absolutely did. So so we, we lose that dimension of Henry as well. Mm -hmm. Catherine really doesn't have that dimension. Mm. She really kind of looks at the church as a tool of, of authority. She's a Medici. She and has to look at it. She has to. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and again, looking at it is 
she is not the only one in this history that does that. Mm -hmm. It's just this story I'm going to share kind of exemplifies that tension and just horrible judgment. And, mm -hmm. and again, the, the human condition of responding to these things, this watershed moment in history. So she was all about authority, power, and legacy. And so she was very big on who the crud are going to marry my kids, mm -hmm. of course. So, you know, her, her son Charles, the... 45th or whatever. By the way, this is <laughs> it is really hard to follow these stories because half the men are Charles and the other half are Henry. Okay. I mean, yeah. even in France. So it's so yeah. e regardless, her, her son's name was Charles. He became king. That was very important to her. But of course, that wasn't a sure thing for several reasons. A, you didn't know if he was going to have kids. B, you didn't know if he was going to live very long. Yeah. So she had to she had to figure all this out. Now, the royal understanding, of course, and everybody, you know, we all know this, is, is that a royal marries a royal for several reasons. What's really interesting about the royal understanding of how they use the term love is that it, it is not the, the, in the same way that we use it today. You know, like this emotional response, this chemical, right? You know, it's not a Nora Ephraim, uh, Ephron movie. It's not a Hallmark Channel movie. It is their, their idea of love is to make a sacrifice and compromise for the better of their kingdom. Okay. And so they would claim that they loved the person they were married to in that way, if that makes sense. So... So even though they were arranged marriages, that's just how they looked at it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that lasted for a long time. Yep. Uh, and I would even say in, in most cases, even, even today, maybe not England. I mean, let's be honest. Harry watched an episode of Suits and said, there's my wife. And that <laughs> wouldn't happen 500 years ago. But um, so she's trying to find suitors for her, her family. She has a daughter named Margaret. She goes by the name of Margot. I was trying to fit in. I don't know Margot somewhere <laughs> in my story, but, you just but I couldn't do it. Um, so I just have to spoon feed it. Yeah. So what she did is she arranged a marriage between her and Henry of Navarre. And Navarre is a small kingdom where it would be on the north side of Spain. So it's right on the border of France at okay. the time. So th there's this arranged marriage. Now, what's interesting about this, again, going back to the Reformation, is she is Catholic. She is staunch Catholic. She's Italian. The, yes. Yeah. And, 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 um, and, Henry and his wife, or his mother, Jean, I know, right? Um, they are Protestant, but in the in the um, the context of uh, the French, they called them Huguenots. Yeah, mm. you know, which uh, the etymology of that is, is wonky. Yeah, um, but it, I just love that word. It's like, oh, the Huguenots are coming. Mm -hmm. Like there's some you know, like militant group, which they 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 do become. But so so there's that there's that tension there. Like, how does this thing work, especially because it's um, I, I, I mean, the 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 rub between the Catholic and Protestants are still, you know, buttonheads big time. Right. I mean, this has just happened in, yeah. in a generation. Um, and so uh, he, uh, the, the mothers, the queen mothers, is that a term in, in, in royalty or am I just yeah. thinking yeah, Game no, of no, Thrones? No, you're right. I'm just thinking of the queen mother in, in House of Dragon right now. But <laughs> the mothers get together and they agree, okay, listen, our kids can get married, but Henry is going to remain a Huguenot. And Catherine's like, okay, fine, sure, you know, wink and a nod. And so they agree to do that. So what happens is, and I'm going to tell the story and then kind of look back on I'm going to Tarantino it a little bit, is... What happens is they decide they're going to get married in 1572, and it's going to be in August. And there's like days in which major things happen. So uh, the Queen of Navarre and her son and all their friends or whatever, they go to Paris. And why? To go shopping, as people do. Sure. They're going to shop for the yeah. wedding. They're going to do yeah. all that. So during that time, there's a man by uh, uh, the name of Collini. 
uh, it's spelled Caligny, but it's not that Caligny. It's not the bishop one. That's 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 another worse person of maybe post-Reformation. Mm, yeah. um, and he is like the head of the Huguenots. And during this time, while all these Protestant royals are there in Paris, he gets shot. Yeah. He doesn't get killed. He gets killed later. They, as a matter of fact, the, there's a really neat story. Well, neat. They after he was shot and he was wounded, they um, they drag him out of bed and throw him out the window. But so he eventually does die in, okay, in the next yeah. days. But he gets shot. That is a big deal because here's the leader of the Huguenots, the Protestant, you know, kind of uprising in France, and yeah. the leader just got shot. And this is all happening leading up to the wedding. Yeah. So then the wedding happens, and then a few days later. They have what's called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Yeah, oh gosh. Okay, and it's on the feast day of St. Bartholomew, disciple of Jesus Christ. Irony, I, I completely understand there. And in this, and, and, and when this happens, all these Protestants are in the city of Paris. Yeah. And what the royals do is they close the gates and they kill them all. Oh, gosh. And then not only that, but after a few days of doing that, they open the gates and they go out of the city and kill them all. I mean, it is very Machiavellian, like, okay. I mean, to, to, to a T. And, and so what's, uh, so what's interesting is, oh, let, let me, let me retract a little bit. So then what happens is Henry, yeah. who is now married to Margot, um, he decides that, okay, I will, I, I'm going to be, Cap fine, I'll be Catholic. And he has to stay in the Yeah. He has to stay in the court of Paris for many years. Okay. His story continues. He, he and his wife agree on an annulment that takes like four years. He actually becomes Calvinist and okay. goes back for a while. Um, what's, what's really kind of cool is they get annulled, but they remain really good friends. Huh. He, she realizes she can't have kids, and he she realizes he needs to, kind of going back to that understanding of love in, in, the, in the royal sense. And they remain friends for the rest of their life. She dies. Um, Catherine's sons all die. Yeah. And Henry becomes the king of France, oh, which is kind of poetic justice, right? Mm. But in true Cranmer fashion, he becomes a Catholic to become the king, king of France. Yeah. Yeah. So he has to renounce that and become the king. I, I, I kid with Cranmer. That's not necessarily how it was. But so he goes back and becomes Catholic and becomes the king. What's interesting about this story is all these things happen so perfectly aligned that the traditional understanding is that Charles the King, along with his mother, orchestrated the whole thing mm. to happen that way. Because if you if you remember, Catherine said, "Okay, Henry doesn't have he could be a Huguenot, whatever." That is not in like her, you know, understanding. Like that is not going to happen. So yeah. she, I, so you could look at it and agree. Yeah, she agreed to that because she needs all these other things to happen. It's like one of those movies that you watch. It's kind of like uh, Ocean's Eleven, where you go back and they show all you the how it was parts. done. Yeah, right. And yeah. so the tradition is, is that she was the master tactician in this. For in the this, massacre. Yeah, for huh. this massacre, getting all these people there at the right time, you know, shoot, you know, having Kalini shot so he could have the tension and, and all that stuff. So then this must happen. This is sounding like House of Dragons. It's actually. total House of Dragons, <laughs> right? Like, as I'm reading this, I'm like, this is why I like this stuff, because this stuff's amazing. There's a red wedding. You oh, know, gosh. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, seriously, that's right. what St. Bartholomew's is all about. And and what's interesting is George R. R. Martin, he takes all of his stories from all of this reformed mm. royal stuff. You know, whether it's the Tudors or the de Medici's, all these characters are are um, muses for all that stuff, minus the dragons, which would be kind of cool if we had those. Seriously. So the tradition is that Catherine was this tactician mm. that did it. And it's not to give her credit, but to give blame. 
because mm. like that that's what they would do back then. But you could look at it one way. You could either look at it as she she's not as bad as the history books say she is. Okay. Or if she was, she was brilliant. Mm. So I share that story only because and, and not to read on the writ or on the fr- French or anything, but uh, because they're we could argue forever who was the war, the worst. Right. But this story really does exemplify the worst of the Reformation. Mm. And there are many stories like this. I and mean, when we talked about, you know, in, in our history in England about going back and forth and people yeah. waking up going, what tradition are we today? Do yeah. I get, you know, killed today? All that stuff. This is like one of those. We're going to use that the church for to use uh, as a tool of authority to remain in authority. The the Huguenots and the royals had a really strange relationship in the sense that the royalty did not they weren't Protestant, but they liked them there because they could um, they can almost use them to remain in authority as opposed to the Roman Catholics taking over authority. So there's all mm. this tension and everything going on in that. So. Um, so really, as we move towards this reformation and what the world's going to look like post this, there is all this really horrible stuff that happens. And we have to take that with a grain in the sense that when really progressive, good things must occur, that there's always going to be those reactions back and yeah. forth to mm-hmm. it, that we have to get through really rough stuff in order to move forward. Mm. Um and so this exemplifies all of that in the Reformation at that point. All I'm right. sure there's a human being worse than Catherine Di Medici. <laughs> oh, there is. I've got him right there here. There you in front go. Of me. But, but <laughs> that's that's the reason why I think yeah. that story needed to be told. Well, that's Nick, awesome. that's that's interesting. And well, I should say I don't, there's a personal element for me in this. I have an ancestor who survived the Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre. <laughs> he fled. Ancestry.com. That or something? yeah, yes, actually he. Um, he was in the city of Bourges, which is south of Paris. Yeah. And there were a few people who kind of got wind because they weren't in Paris. They oh, got yeah. wind that it was coming. Oh, absolutely. So he just like yeah. fled the city to this little village and hid out mm-hmm. um, and survived. And then, you know, about three generations later, they emigrated to Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that that Huguenot, Huguenot, you know, that's cool element then- that's. In, in my literal DNA. Oh, you have Calvinism. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, all, it takes all sorts. <laughs> Did that massacre achieve its objective of sort of like ending the Huguenots? And like, did they peter out or? It, it ended that specific movement of Protestantism, right? Okay. But, but we also, uh, it's a bigger story than what's going on in France. I mean, this yeah, is, right. again, one of those things that it is inevitable. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm also curious that when the royal families make these decisions, how long term are they really thinking? Mm-hmm. You know. But again, going back to the Machiavellian understanding is as you do this and you wipe them all out to as a warning to yeah. anybody else. Yeah, yeah. But when things happen, I, and again, I, I you know you I hate to take this story, this horrible story, and then move it into uh, the religious aspect. But when Things are moving in the world by the spirit, regardless of how we as human beings respond, those changes are inevitable. Mm. You know, you can look at it in in the sense of uh, uh, colonialism, you yeah. know, when we we spread that, that the quote unquote gospel. And but once we retracted from that, the, the gospel still remained. Mm. And the Holy Spirit moved in that. So even it's like all, the Virgin of Guadalupe. It's like hey, exactly. Guadalupe. So, so as we we. <laughs> But it, it always harkens back to we try to put God in a box and we try to have yeah. God work in the world the way we want God to yeah. work in the world. 
And God is going to work in the world the way God wants to work yeah. in the world, regardless of the horrible, stupid things yeah, we right. do in history. Nothing is wasted in God's economy, yeah. as as the Reverend Sarah Ardrey Graves would there probably say. Um, God can use our mess and bring things out of our complete mess. And I, and and it's God is pulling us, and yeah. we're scraping. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, yeah. John Shields has a great quote, and I forgot what it is. I'll have to ask him what it is. But it's always, and I don't mean individually, but historically, that's what yeah. this happened. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. the story of the Old Testament, right? Yeah. Is God pulling us while we scrape? Yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned Machiavellian. Yes. And that's a great word to lead into the person I'm going to talk about. Yes. Not, not an ethnic group, yes. not a people group, the French, <laughs> but an individual person. Yeah. But I want to begin mm-hmm. by asking you a question. Oh, Lord. Do you like Christmas? Of course. Do you like Easter? Yes. Why not? Because the best part of both of those days is that they are marked by spending the day alone with fasting, quiet prayer, confession of sin, and reflection on your own mortality, right? Absolutely. Sure. That's how we do it. That's Maybe well. After some eggnog. You, no, there's no eggnog. Um, so here's a story about a man. Who didn't like Christmas or Easter? Scrooge unless doesn't count. Unless <laughs> they were seen as particularly good days, where you also went to work like normal, and had those parts of it as the like defining part of what those days were. Okay. Uh, there were also a lot of other things he didn't like. He didn't like the Scottish or yeah. Irish people. Gosh. He hated Roman Catholics. And he did not like the Book of Common Prayer at all. This could be so many people, Mark. <laughs> Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> so now we're going to skip ahead to like the yep. third or fourth generation of yep. the Reformation. But yep. because of the parameters that we were yep. given, we could go all the way up to the Treaty of Westphalia in yep. the 1640s. I was like, yes, this guy fits under the radar. Yep. That final generation of the period we consider the Reformation period. Yep. So interestingly... You and I have both chosen people who are in the political realm mm-hmm. rather than... Now, Cromwell, you know, nobody's going to consider him a religious leader or a theologian. He was not ordained. He wasn't even a religious scholar or a teacher. He was a politician. He was a military leader. And at the end of his life, he was a dictator. But here's the thing. And this is why I think it's interesting that we both put political people. In his own mind... In his own eyes, he 100% was a religious leader. He saw himself as a religious mm-hmm. leader. And he really... Stories all this time. <laughs> yes. He represents really, a, you know, all of the problems and dangers that come with theocracy mm-hmm. as a form of government. Even yeah. more, you know, Medici, the, you know, Catherine, of, you know, and, and those royals that you were describing like you said, saw religion as a tool, a Machiavellian tool they could use to manipulate behind the scenes. Cromwell took that one step further and said, well, no, it's not a tool, but I'm God's chosen person. Mm. So I know how things are supposed to be. And I will, I will work the system, not only as a system that can be worked, but he really believed this stuff. Mm. Um, now he didn't start out that way. He kind of had an unassuming beginning to his life. He was he was born into a family of the landed gentry, which means they weren't aristocrats, but they were wealthy landowners. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the way they, they had tenants that worked the land for them, so they received rent income. So they were very similar to the, to the kind of the nobility and aristocracy, even though they weren't technically considered part of it. Um, 
so he was moderately well-to-do at a certain point in his life, his income dropped and he had to sell land and live a simpler way. But he, he, you know, they were a family of means. He went to college at Cambridge. He dropped out before he graduated. Um, but he ended up being able to go to law school anyway. Is, isn't it nice to be in the <laughs> 1600s in the 17th century where you can go to law school even without a college degree if you know people? Yeah. Um, he even found his way into being a member of parliament, parliament before he was in his 30s. Young man, but all of his biographers will say he had a pretty nondescript life. He actually at one point considered emigrating to Connecticut, to New England, to start over there because he just felt like his life was spinning in circles. Mm -hmm. Um, around this time, so he's in his mid thirties, um, and he has some sort of religious experience. He grew up an Anglican, you know, uh, going to parish churches, worshiping with the prayer book. Um, he, the college at Cambridge he attended was Sydney Sussex, which was a Puritan led college. So he began to be influenced by the Puritans during his college days. And what tradition are the Puritans? Calvinist. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah they're the ones who think that the Church of England is still too Catholic and has some things that they that they want to reform the church from within. The yeah. Puritans want to keep the Church of England as the Church of England, but they want it to look much more like the Reformed Church on yeah. the continent. They don't yeah. want bishops. They don't want sacraments to look the way that they look in the Church of England. They don't want vestments to be something that are that are part of the worship life. They really don't like the prayer book the way that it currently exists. They want to really strip it down. Mm -hmm. um, so he's starting to get stewed in that soup. Um, he's now in Parliament, and he starts hanging out with some of these radical, not only radical political people, but also more radical religious people. And he starts having all these ideas about um, being a very just, you know, a terrible sinful person and he he kind of gets swept up in this wave of radical uh expressions of of uh religious faith that are the people who are known as the what we at the time they were known as the independents uh which were the early baptists mm. and the the pilgrims the people who were mm -hmm. the, the the separatists yeah um and he decides he is going to be an independent congregationalist there should be no church hierarchy at all, but every congregation should determine its own worship. So is he starting his own church? He's like not starting his own him? church, but he's aligning himself with some of those people who are. Gotcha. But then again, he also has very clear notions of, for him, the people who are too radical on the other side. Mm -hmm. You know, he does not like Quakers, for mm -hmm. example. There are people, there's a group called the... How do you not like Quakers? I, well, it, there you go. That's why he's the worst person. He doesn't like Quakers. He's helping you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a group at the time called the fifth monarchists who literally read the book of Daniel, that there would be four Kings and the fifth King. And then Jesus would come back oh. and they're trying to make that happen. Mm. And he's like, well, they're a little bit crazy, <laughs> but I'm not crazy. Cause I'm all over Cromwell. Mm. And so he starts this severe, he starts reading the Bible like all the time and, and it's reading the Bible where he's seeing himself in it. Mm -hmm. Like he's reading the book of Psalms where the, all the lines in those cursing psalms about the wicked will be removed from the land. And he's like, oh, that's what I need to do. Mm. God's talking to me to say it's my job to remove mm. the wicked from the land. Mm. Well, this is around the time that we get the series of conflicts that we collectively call the English Civil War, mm -hmm. where Parliament, which has a huge Puritan faction within it, um, goes head to head with King Charles I and the Royalists, uh, the Cavaliers, as they're called. Mm -hmm. 
and there's this just this 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 great political deadlock between the two that ends up going into armed conflict and so a lot of the parliamentarian party some of them say well my job is to stay in parliament part of the, and and king charles dissolves parliament along the way and then realizes he needs to raise money and only parliament has the authority to raise taxes mm-hmm. for money so he has to call parliament back and says hey i need money and they say no no you know and so he dissolves it again and then calls it back and then finally there's just this the war breaks out mm. cromwell is among those members of parliament who decide that their job should be to go into the battlefield mm. so he he leaves parliament right around the time that they pass a law banning christmas yep we'll come back to that again the celebration of christmas is banned by parliament cromwell's like that's cool <laughs> Um, we should be reading the Bible and fasting and praying quietly and going to work. Uh, but he goes and joins the army. He has no formal military tactics training, but he starts winning battles and rising in the ranks of the military and becomes a commander of what is known as the new model army. All the while he's reading his little Bible to himself and, um, seeing it continually seeing it as God's personal message to him as God's chosen vessel to purge the land of England from all unrighteousness through his military action and eventually saying, kicking King Charles off the throne, mm-hmm. deciding that the king is a traitor to the country and needs to die. Char- uh, Oliver Cromwell himself signed the execution warrant Yikes. for King Charles to be beheaded and saw that as one of his like crowning achievements, pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um you know that psalm 17 he there's a letter that exists of him reading psalm 17 where the verse is the wicked will be speedily destroyed from the land and he read that and said see i'm doing the right thing i'm going around um here's an even worse so he's doing this then 1649 king charles has now been beheaded parliament is still trying to figure out how to govern the land in that vacuum that's been created they said there's a, there's a group in Ireland of royalists, like in Ireland, ready to like come back and, and bring Charles' son, Charles II, and restore mm-hmm. him to the throne. So Parliament sends Cromwell to Ireland to squelch that potential rebellion. Well, guess what Ireland is full of? Leprechauns. <laughs> Worse. Roman Catholics. <laughs> Uh, Oliver Cromwell's favorite people. Mm-hmm. So you can almost see him kind of rubbing his hands together mm-hmm. with glee. And he just wreaks complete havoc over the island of Ireland. Any Catholic landowner is kicked off their land and the government seizes their property. And they're given like really hard scrabble land that's hard to grow crops on. Thousands of people are killed both in the battlefield and civilians are massacred in cities. Um, any Catholic priest who is caught and captured is executed. Um, needless to say, Catholicism is completely outlawed. Um, and here's the best part. Oliver Cromwell says, this is a righteous, righteous judgment of God upon these barbarous wretches. 400 years later, if you say the word Oliver Cromwell in Ireland, not good. You should you shouldn't say it. Like, I, I don't. I I. 
there are probably not too many children born in Ireland who are given the name Oliver when they're born. Hmm. And this is 400 years later. Yeah. Like, his legacy is pretty palpable yeah, there. Yeah. Um, so. Irish don't hold grudges anyway. No, no. I mean, that's just not who they yeah. are. No. My so, man. King, King Charles is gone. There's this power vacuum. Oliver Cromwell is this military leader. Uh, he comes back and in a few short years, decides the thing to do is to replace the monarchy with himself. Naturally. He, he's given the title Lord Protector. He has an investiture ceremony that looks suspiciously a whole lot like a coronation. <laughs> the only thing that's missing is a literal crown on his head. Yeah. He's actually wearing purple robes for this thing. Can I ask how... How when when the fighting started, mm -hmm. the the common people, what was the was it like a 50-50 split between ba yeah, kind of. I okay. mean, it was really I mean, they call it a civil war or civil wars. And it really, even though the 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 reasons and the, the specifics were very different from the our yeah. the American Civil War, the effect amongst the people was similar. Okay. That you had households divided politically but among themselves. Okay. The royalists versus the Republicans or parliamentarians on the other side. Um, and so it really was just this this mess. There were also geographical regions that became associated with the different factions. Mm. So London and kind of the southeast of England were largely parliamentarian because that's where a lot of the Puritans were living um, and places in like Scotland in the west and parts of Wales were very um, royalist. So a lot of the battles kind of show that geographical. Mm. And, and, the pro and there was a series of things like at one point, Parliament won um, a series of battles, and King Charles said, okay, you've won. Let's have a compromise. And they started to come together to try to find a compromise. At that point, still having Charles remain the king, Cromwell's in the background going, this isn't going to be good enough. Mm -hmm. um, but they never could reach an agreeable compromise because there were people on both sides, Cromwell being one of them, who were like, no, 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 we've got to be radical all the way and just start burn the ground and start over again king charles you know was his own worst enemy because he kept trying over and over again after that treaty he got another army raised and tried again and lost that time you know and eventually that's when he was was captured and imprisoned and tried and killed so cromwell declares himself lord protector and here's where we get this machiavellian thing hmm. everything that he said he was against he was until he was the one in charge mm -hmm. so he said no 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 I'll be the authoritarian ruler. He was angry. They were all angry at King Charles I for having dissolved Parliament. When Oliver Cromwell doesn't get his way, what does he do? <laughs> Dissolves Parliament. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it, you know, he puts himself in. He's like, well, I'm God's chosen person, you know. So I know what's right for the people. He, uh, on paper, you know, he passed laws saying, well, we will promote religious tolerance for all these dissenting groups. Well, tolerance worked so long as he agreed with your particular group. Mm. You know, so certain groups got to enjoy a relative degree of religious tolerance, but not if you were a Quaker, not if you were an Anglican who wanted to use the Book of Common Prayer, and certainly not if you were a Roman Catholic. Mm. Then there was no religious tolerance. And Christmas. You know, you'll often hear people say, well, Oliver Cromwell banned Christmas. That's not literally true because as we said earlier parliament had our, had passed that law he was a member of parliament when that law was passed that the celebration of christmas the celebration of any feast day during the church calendar it's all papist and cannot be celebrated um 
when he was Lord Protector, he kept that law on the books. He did nothing to um, revoke that law. And it wasn't until the restoration, the people were so upset with what happened in that power vacuum when he became this basically military dictator. The rule of law was him and his like little cronies just passing laws. People came, became so disillusioned with that and upset at all this harsh, like theocratical rule that after he died, um, his son attempted to become Lord Protector after him, and they were having none of it. Kicked him off and invited Charles's son to come back mm -hmm. as King Charles II and restore the monarchy. All the people who were like, oh, the monarchy is terrible, there's too much power, they, they got Parliament back together and Parliament invited the king to return and restore the monarchy. Along with it, he brought with him the Book of Common Prayer, mm -hmm. And Christmas. Yay. And one of the first laws that he passed was to restore the celebration of Christmas. And Easter? And Easter. Good. And Pentecost. And Fourth of yeah. July? Let's get <laughs> yeah, Right. So, politics and religious extremism and political extremism make I, terrible bedfellows. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up uh, yeah. Cromwell. He was one of the, yeah. in my top five when I was looking at yeah. it. Yeah, so well, he, and you he know, was a son of a gun. Reading um, the Bible. In a vacuum can be a very dangerous thing to do. Amen. It's very Howarwasian of you. Oh, well, um, <laughs> it's amazing to me as you lay all that out, like how the system allowed that to happen. It's just a lot. Yeah. The system just waited for somebody like that to go away before they could restore it. Like, like, yeah. like the lack of leadership or right. gall to, to yeah. be able to do it's, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And that's, and what's interesting about Cromwell, just as an individual, his journey towards that is yeah. not unique. Like yeah. there are so many, and kind of going back to mine is it's, it exemplifies mm -hmm. this other thing. Marx does the same. He thing. He was radicalized. It's, it's, yeah. it's it. Someone gets radicalized and takes the truth and contextualizes it for mm -hmm. their own understanding. Mm -hmm. You know, all, all of that manifest destiny type stuff, and you know, and, yeah. and just and, and you're right. It does take it another level where it's you, you convince yourself that religion is not a tool, but it's to justify your means. Right. So in his own yeah. way, he is a product of those parts of the Reformation yes. that, that were championing, hey, we need to be able to read the Bible. Yeah. We need to have it in our own languages. You take that to its furthest extreme, yep. right. and, and the danger is you get somebody like this. Well, and also is, you know, as we hear more and more stories through podcasts and shows and everything about uh, Western non-denominational pastors and things who are like the same thing where that's why I asked you is like, you know, did he start his own church? Cause that's like the mentality of I'm going to mm -hmm. do my own thing. And that is the only right way to do it rather than yeah. reforming the system itself, yeah. which is eventually that's what I he mean. And in his own way, he kind of did start his own church. He's mm -hmm. saying the church of England needs to look like this. So it's ironic that you have a person who's a congregationalist yeah. who thinks that churches need to govern themselves individually mm -hmm. in charge of the state church. Mm. Yeah, he walks a fine line. Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it works for him when it works for him. Exactly, and that was his cup of tea. This will work for me in this way when I make it work for me. Yeah, yeah. Watch C-SPAN long enough, you'll, oh, gosh. you'll hear that too. So, <laughs> so that's good. Cromwell is. is a really good example, yeah. but I think both stories exemplify two different trajectories that cross constantly. Yeah, right? politics is, and yeah, yeah. 
And, and this is yeah. a really good prop, Jason, because we really, when we look at history books or take history classes, we always like, and then this happened and these happened. And the Reformation was wonderful. And, you know, and, 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 and then uh, it, we gloss over it so much, but it's like, God, there was so a much lot going on. Yeah. So much stuff um, yeah. that we fight, you know, when the Holy Spirit's at work. It's, mm -hmm. yeah. And stories, it's, it's hard, like, these stories are never linear the way we want them to yes. be nice. Here's a story that yeah. goes from point A to point B. There are always these cul-de-sacs and roundabouts and complicated parts that feed into it. Yeah, and, and steps forward, two steps back, yeah, right. all that stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, we see it in our own Western history, you know, or American history. This this is Western history. But yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Mm. Well, thanks, guys. You're welcome. Yeah. That was very interesting. I really like it. It was good. Friends, the cases have been presented, and now the power is in your hands. In the episode description and notes is a link to a poll. Let us know who you think told the most compelling story. As always, please like and subscribe if you want to hear more. You can learn more on our webpage, thematchuppodcast.com. Please follow us on Twitter at The Matchup Pod. Also, make sure and join our Facebook group, The Matchup Podcast, for extra information about the show. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.